he will justify many. That's really the whole point of these last few verses of Isaiah chapter 53. And we've looked at this whole chapter, one that, again, I've said many times over the last few weeks, we're very familiar with, but even after this, even after tonight, let's, let's not go to Isaiah 53 again, even in our own reading, and think, oh, you know, we've been over that. Because you won't plumb the depths that's there. You should, should always be reading these, even these familiar portions and, and seeing what's there and asking the Lord to open up and unfold the word to us. So don't, because it's familiar, think that we've done, now we can have a look at something else. We can look at something else and we, ought, we should and we ought to, but let's not just, you know, think we're never going to go to Isaiah 53 again. Okay, so he says in this verse that we began to look at last week, verse 10, he shall see his seed. There's three verses of scripture I just want to read to you in regards to, to this. He shall see his seed. He says he shall see his seed. Proverbs 17 verse 6 says, children's children are the crown of old men and the glory of children is their father. Children's children are the crown of old men. And the glory of children is their father. If there's any grandfathers in this room, uh, there may be a few. But children's children are the crown of old men. Is that true? I'm not a grandfather yet, hopefully not for many years. But I'm trying to think about it and how I feel about my own children. And I can't remember who I was speaking to, but I think I was speaking to somebody quite regular, uh, quite recently, sorry. And they were saying that you have, I don't know if it's the same or similar, but a great affection for your grandchildren like you do your own. It's almost like they become your own as a grandparent. Like I said, I'm yet to experience that, but I'm sure that's true. But here it says it's the crown. They're the crown of old men. And the glory of children is their father. Children, is your father your glory? That's a question, isn't it? Psalm 127 verses 4 and 5 says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And then the next psalm onwards, Psalm 128, verse 6 says, Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So it says in this, this, this chapter regarding Jesus that he shall see his seed. When the patriarchs were close to death, you may think about what you've read in the Old Testament. I do hope that you read the Old Testament. It is important to read the Old Testament. But the patriarchs, the fathers, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all these people who, who were the fathers of the Jews called the patriarchs, Jacob and his 12 sons and the 12 tribes of Israel, when they were close to death, they would gather their sons and their grandchildren. But they would generally get their sons, and if they were blessed, their grandsons, and they would, they would bless them. Part of these blessings often included blessings and sometimes even curses. You think about what happened uh, with uh, Isaac and Jacob and Esau. 
And also some of Jacob's sons, there were kind of little bits in there that you think, that's a blessing. But particularly you might think of Noah. He blessed his sons. And if you remember what happened with Noah when he came off the ark, he planted a vineyard and he partook of the juice, the fermented juice of the wine that he made and he became drunk. And one of his sons went in and the scripture says uncovered his nakedness. He embarrassed him. He humiliated him. Even though he was drunk and he was lying the way he was, this son embarrassed him, humiliated him. The other two sons walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness without looking upon it. So when he awoke, he actually cursed his son. But actually, it was his grandson that he cursed. It was Ham to whom he spoke. But it was Canaan, his son, who bore the curse. What about Abraham? Abraham was promised that he would be the father of many nations and that his seed would be as the stars and the sand of the sea. That was a promise to Abraham. It was hard for him to see. He was an old man. He had no children apart from the one from the slave woman, Ishmael. But he had none of the seed of the promise. But he was promised this great seed. You see, the, this idea of the length of days and a person, a man particularly, being allowed to see their posterity being born was considered a great honour amongst the Hebrews. In Genesis 48, 11, when Israel, or Jacob as it were, is on his deathbed, he says this to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact... God has also shown me your offspring. Not only was Jacob so blessed to see Joseph's face, face, who he'd never thought he would see again, he also had that great honor to see his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So this was this great honor that he had. It was perhaps more than we might even take it. They found it a particular honor to be able to live, to be old enough to see their posterity. Even grandsons and great-grandsons and great-great-grandsons would have been a tremendous honour for anyone in the Hebrew community. So Abraham believed and it was imputed to him as righteousness. So if we're thinking about being imputed righteousness to Abraham... And he was promised to see his seed, which was this great vast multitude, more than the dust of the earth or the, the sand of the sea or the stars of heaven. Ought we not then to think that the king of righteousness, who is the seed, he is the seed, ought we then to expect that he should see the numberless multitude given to him by his father? All these promises to Abraham are not just empty promises. They mean something. And as Abraham is this man who was seen as righteousness because he believed, how much more so than the son of righteousness will he see the great multitude of the seed that comes from his salvation? That's the promise that God gave him. God gave him a people. You can see that in many places in Scripture, but you can see it in John chapter 17. God, those you gave to me, he says. God gave Jesus Christ a people, which, although we won't be looking at this today, 
as the negative side, that if God gave him a people, then there must also be a people that weren't given to him. It makes sense. He can't really have one without the other. Revelation 5.9 says, You are worthy to take the scroll, speaking of the Lamb of God, and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed to us by God, by your blood, out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. There is not a nation on this earth that God hasn't got people. Whosoever, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is no longer just for one nation of the Jews, but it is for every nation, every tribe and every tongue. And he has redeemed people from everywhere since the beginnings of them all. Revelation, again, 7, 9 through 10. It says, after these things I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You remember that time when Jesus walks in in the great uh, entry into Jerusalem and there's those people and they've prepared palm leaves and they're waving them shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. But those same people, only days later, were crying crucify him. But not these people. These people are the true, uh, clear, re re revealed people of that time. Shown in heaven. These people will not deny Christ. These people are a great numberless multitude whom Christ has saved from tribes and peoples and tongues. And they're crying out to the Lord with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is his people. This is a great multitude. This is those seed which he shall see. He shall see his seed. It also says that he shall prolong his days. Said earlier, but there are things said here that unless we look into them, we won't understand. Maybe we'll understand, but maybe we won't get the culture. Again, long life. He says he shall prolong his days. Long life to the Hebrews it was a great blessing. And actually, it was also believed to be of a divine favor from God if you had long life. You remember when uh, was it Hezekiah was ill? He asked the Lord, didn't he, for more time? Fifteen years was given him. This long life was seen to be a blessing from God, his, his divine favor. God said to Solomon these words in 1 Kings 3.14, he says, so if you walk in my ways, you see there, there is uh, that kind of emphasis on obeying. Again, I think Frank said it this morning, obeying the commandments of God. We have to obey God. We have to walk in his ways. But he said to Solomon, if you do that, if you walk in my ways, 
to keep my statutes and commandments. It's always been the same. As your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. You walk with him. You walk with him. It is seen this long life of service to God as a great honor and a blessing. Speaking of the promised land, God says to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 25, 15, you shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure. Again, talking about honesty and walking in integrity. And he says that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So then we look at this prolonging of days and we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ died. But even though he died and he died once for all, Jesus Christ only died once. He won't be killed again. Think about Lazarus. He was raised from the dead, wasn't he? Out of that tomb. And they took him away, all of his grave clothes, and he went on to live however long. But he died again. The Lord Jesus Christ died, but he died once, once for all, never to die again. He rose again, conquering death. Conquering death. Death has no hold on him and, friends, has no hold on you, actually, if you know him. If he is yours, and if you are his, death has no hold on you. Your body may die. In fact, it's certain. But death in itself has no hold on you. For Christ has conquered death, and he rose again, and all those in him shall rise in the resurrection. And we shall be given a new body. For the Lord Jesus Christ then it shows you that his days are not only lengthened by years, that a blessing from his father is to lengthen his days by years, but his days are eternal. He is eternal, and he shall see the great multitudes of his spiritual children. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? He, is, he sees them all, and they're his children. He is the head of his church. He shall prolong his days. It says the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He governs all. When it says the government will be upon his shoulder, it's not talking about the Labour Party or the Conservatives or the Lib Dems or the President. He's talking about the government of all. Everything is governed by him and it shall prosper 
in his hand. We might view it and we might look and say, what is happening? Why is God allowing this? But it prospers in his hand and it will go all according to his will and his purpose. One commentator says, under his government and his direction, this is what he's speaking about. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is his government and direction. Religion will be promoted and extended through him. The reward of all his sufferings in making an offering for sin would be that multitudes would be converted and saved. You remember how we talked about God being pleased? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was him that put him to grief. This is why, because of the reward, the Moravians on the ship, and I know there is some conversation or debate as to how true and accurate the words are, but when the Moravians went on the ship, according to the story, as they set sail, two of the young ones that went on this ship, they were going to a place in slavery. They sold themselves to slavery, apparently, never to return. And they cried from the ship, is not the Son of God due the reward of his suffering? Shall not he see it, the reward of his suffering? And he has, hasn't he? He sees the reward of his sufferings, which making an offering for sin would be multitudes. A numberless amount that we've read in Revelation that will be converted and saved and friends if you are with him, if you're in him, if he's yours tonight, you are part of the multitude that the Bible speaks of. That revelation that John had as he wrote it and spoke it, you were in it. That's the numberless multitude that he saw and you were one of them. It also includes his reign being permanent. And that the work which the Lord or Yahweh designed and desired would prosper under his administration. Everything regards to this world, we can trust in the government of God, regardless of how we see it. And then we read these words, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Philippians chapter 3. This may also be another familiar portion of scripture to you. Philippians 3, 7 to 11. Paul says these words. Uh, actually, they were referred to this morning. But what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. And he had a lot, Paul. Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. Trained at the feet of Gamaliel, he had places to go. He could have reached high places. Like Moses, we probably forget about Moses. But he was under the wing of Moses' daughter, sorry, Pharaoh's daughter. He could have been in line, in a sense, for the throne of Egypt. But it says in Hebrews, doesn't it, that he gave it up to the reproach of Christ. So Paul the same. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his resurrection, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What a thing for him to open up there and admit not that I have any righteousness of my own. That's what his whole faith has previously been built upon. I'm righteous through the law because I keep it. That was it. He built his whole life upon it and it came crashing down. And now he says, I, I don't have any righteousness of my own. And thank God that I don't because I have his. I have his righteousness, the righteousness which is from God by faith. But he counted everything as lost. For what? For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Friends, we need to know Jesus Christ. It is by knowledge of him that we come to faith. By knowledge of him. It says in John 17 verse 3, this is one of probably a great list of favorite verses, but it is a favorite verse of mine, John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. What is eternal life? What is it? Is it going to heaven and going through the doors and seeing fruit trees you've never seen before or flowers and colors that you never knew existed? Is it, is it bouncing on clouds and eating Philadelphia, as the advert tells us? What is it? What is eternal life? And he says it here. This is eternal life, that they might know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is it. If, you want, if anybody asks you what's eternal life, then you tell them John 17 verse 3. Eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ who he sent. That is all, everything. And he says, by the knowledge, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. We must have a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in our minds, in an intellectual, learned, factual way. Of course, we need to have it in our minds. Information and knowledge comes through our mind, but oftentimes with people, it doesn't go 18 inches further onto the heart. There are many who have a knowledge of God. But are they, are they the same? Are they the people that have... A heart change. There are many people who will confess Christ as their, as their Lord and Saviour. But the question is, is it a knowledge in the heart or is it just a knowledge in the mind? And those are questions that we have to ask ourselves. Have a look at Romans chapter 10, verse 8 forward. I'm not going to go there. This is just, this is off my notes, but he speaks about the confession. You confess with your mouth and then it says, Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. It's got to work in the heart. You've got to know Christ in the soul. He has to have drawn you. He has to have manifested himself to the very root of who you are. Not just some intellectual knowledge of explaining who Jesus Christ is as a person and explaining away salvation and the road to it. It's more than that. You've got to know him on a personal level. By his knowledge, we shall justify Many. We won't be justified, friends. We don't know Christ. It's impossible. There's no other way. 
Eternal life is that you might know him and know Jesus Christ who he has sent. And then he says this in the same portion, for, for he shall bear their iniquities. This is the reason for their justification, because he bore our iniquities. There is no justification without the bearing of sin, without bearing our iniquities. John Gill says, he is the procuring and meritorious cause of their justification. His righteousness is the matter of it. In him as their head, they are justified, and by him the sentence is pronounced. What an amazing fact that he pronounces the judgment upon you, that he is the one who justifies you. For this is to be understood, not of making men holy and righteous inherently, that is, sanctification, nor of a teaching men doctrinally the way and method of justifying men, which is no other than ministers do. But it is a forensic act, a pronouncing and declaring men righteous, as opposed to condemnation. And there are many who are so justified, the many who were ordained to eternal life, the many whose sins Christ bore and gave his life a ransom for, the many sons that are brought to him to glory. This shows that they are not a few, which serves to magnify the grace of God, exalt the satisfaction and righteousness of Christ, and encourage distressed sinners to look to him for justification for life. And yet they are not all men, for all men have not faith, nor are they saved. Though all Christ's spiritual seed and offspring shall be justified and shall glory, and this by or through his knowledge, the knowledge of him, the knowledge of Christ, which is no other than faith in him, by which a man sees and knows him and believes in him, as the Lord his righteousness. And this agrees with the New, Test New Testament doctrine of justification by faith, which is no other than the manifestation, knowledge, sense, and perception of it by faith. See, this most famous chapter of Isaiah and those few verses at the end of chapter 52, which we started in, they call us to behold God's servant. Behold my servant. We behold him this evening in high exaltation. A wise and all-powerful, yet humble, and in a human sense, one whose countenance and whose form holds no beauty that he should be desired. And yet, such beauty... Such magnificence, such glory, such light, that in his kingly glory one falls to their face as though dead. We see one who does not seek after his own glory, but he desires to do the will of his Father. And it is he. It is the Father who glorifies the Son. 
no other commendation matters. It doesn't matter. Yours, men's, presidents, governors, pilot, the Pharisees. It doesn't matter. Only God the Father glorifies the Son. And that's all that matters. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the servant of God, comes to our plane, to our existence, taking upon himself the form of the flesh, humankind, mankind, not as a very temporal officiation, but permanently he unites God and man together. A man walks in heaven this very evening. The God-man, as he entered into those glorious halls where those ancient gates and doors opened to him. He sits at the right hand of God in victory. And yet, as he walks upon the dust of the ground, alongside the crown of his creation, and upon the earth that he formed, he is despised, and he is rejected by his own. Hated without a cause. And he is not only acquainted with our griefs, but carries our griefs and our sorrows. Upon his own spotless shoulders. The chastisement that our sins rightly and justly deserved were laid upon him. And he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The righteous for the unrighteous. A surety, a substitution, the blameless and spotless for the stained and the guilty. He has left, as it were, the 99 sheep and he has run after the wanderer. You, me. And he has turned those sheep of his who went astray from that onto the broad path that leads to destruction. And he's turned them back onto the narrow path that leads to life. And not turned them back only. He hasn't just picked them up, said, that's the way you need to go. Toddle off. That's the way. Go on. Shoo. No, no. He takes the sheep by the, by the wool of the neck, if you like, grabs his crook, and he guides them continually through life and on to those green pastures and still waters. That is our great shepherd. This great servant, silent before his accusers. No defense in his mouth against the magnitude of false accusations and lies. He didn't speak up for himself before men. And yet ever lives to intercede on behalf of his sheep before the Father. He's not a quiet saviour. 
not when it comes to us and saving us. There is really no way for us in this life to completely plumb the eternal depths of his love for his people. He is, as we say many times, incomprehensible, and yet he is knowable. And as I said previously, know him we must. To know him is all. To know him is everything. To know him is eternal life. These few verses of scripture are full of sorrow, full of grief, full of sadness, full of distress and pain as we read them. And yet as we end, we see that this servant of God is greatly honoured. He is glorified in his saints. He is glorified by the Father. He has the highest name, the only name by which men can be saved. The name by which every knee shall bow and every tongue confesses that he is Lord unto the glory of the Father. By his obedience, by one man's obedience, a nameless to us, of course, and numberless to us, amount of people have been justified. What is it to be justified? To be not guilty, to not be condemned, to not be led away in chains to your punishment, to not hang your head in sorrow because you know that you have been delivered the just desert for your crime, to stand before the righteous bar of God and he says not guilty. Instead to walk away with his son by your side. The call to behold my servant. It's not just written in these few verses. Nor is it written only in the entirety of scripture. But it's written on the hearts of every believer. And every believer ought to gaze upon him. Learn of him. Immerse ourselves in him for the remainder of our days. Nothing is as important as coming to an ever-increasing knowledge of the Saviour of sinners, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. For we will all go into eternity one way or another. And when we leave this world and our foggy, misty glimpse of the glory of Christ, then we'll see him as he truly is. Then, even then, we will continue on in amazement with the eyes of the new body given to us by Christ and able to gaze upon the one who paid the ultimate price for every one of his people. We'll be able to see him as he is. We shall never cease to see him and be engulfed in adoration and praise. And turn in the utmost wonder at the revelation of yet another of his majestic attributes. When we hear God say, behold, my servant. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we do thank you for the wonders of your word. 
And as it says in your Psalms, Lord, we ask you to unfold the word to us. Lord, we thank you for this time we've spent in Isaiah 53 and also in Isaiah 52, where it tells us to behold your servant. Lord, I do pray that this is not just something that will be a flash in the pan, that will skirt by and skip through, but Lord, that you'll really touch our hearts and minds, that we will really spend the remainder of our days learning to behold your servant. And Lord, I pray that you reveal him to us, Lord, for as Phil read about blind Bartimaeus, Lord, we are all blind. And the only way that we can cast off the mantle of sin, leaving it behind and run to Christ, is if you walk towards us, is if you say to us, what can I do for you? And we say, Lord, I want to be able to see. I don't want to be blind anymore. Only you can open the eyes of the blind. But Lord, I ask you then to help us. For without you, we can do nothing. And I pray, O oh God, that we will go on this day into one degree of glory to another. And I pray for every single person in this room, Lord, that we will behold your servant to such greater, greater levels and depths, widths, heights, sang that song this morning, so high you can't get over it, so low you can't get under it, so wide you can't get round it. Oh, wonderful love, may we see it. May it not just be a children's song. May it not just be a fact that we have heard at the pulpit on a Sunday evening. May it be real. Will you take us to a greater depth, Lord, of the knowledge of your servant? Help us, we pray. Thank you, Lord God, for sending him. Thank you, Lord God, for the resurrection that we one day face to a greater degree even than now. We are justified before you if we trust in Christ, if we believe in Christ, if we confess him, if he has worked in our hearts. We are justified and we are righteous in your sight with the imputed righteousness of Christ. But on that day, Lord, we all long to see Christ as he truly is and we shall see as he sees and we know as he knows Lord we long for that day and yet until then reveal yourself to us give us the power and the strength to live this life for you as we were encouraged this morning to do Lord God may it be that we glorify your name in Jesus name we pray and ask Amen, Amen.